welcome to episode 89 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Jay Hakes, a speaker and author on energy issues, with a new book, Energy Crises, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Hard Choices in the 1970s. Jay served both as administrator of the U.S. Energy Information Administration during the Clinton administration and as director for research and policy for President Obama's BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill Commission. In the book Energy Crises, he brings his expertise in energy and presidential history to bear on the questions of why these crises occurred, how different choices might have prevented them, and what they've meant for the half-century since, and likely the half-century ahead. His next book is on climate change. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm with Jay Hakes, speaker and author on energy issues with a new book, Energy Crises, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Hard Choices in the 1970s. Jay, welcome to The Climate Champions. Uh, Lee, it's great to be here. With regards to climate change, and you've been involved a long time, what was your motivating moment that got you started on your journey? Well, I think it's a series of moments. I, I think for a lot of us, the first thing in life is realizing the environment in general is worth protecting. I look back to when I was a young child driving across the United States with my parents, and the air was just so polluted. And in those days, we didn't have air conditioning. So you had the choice of leaving the window opening and getting this foul air or keeping it closed and frying in a very uncomfortable car. So along comes the Clean Air Act in 1970, and over time kind of cleans that up. And you have to say, well, that's a really good thing. Now, the climate part of it sort of emerges from this broader issue of the environment. And I think the thing visually that I remember was either 1989 or 1990, I was on the staff of the Senate and I was invited to this meeting where a senator named Al Gore was going to speak. And he gave a slideshow about the climate change issue. That slideshow later became very famous in his 2006 movie, Inconvenient Truth. But at that point, that's the first time I remember seeing the climate change issue laid out, how climate had changed from nature over the years, but now man was changing it much faster in a very consequential way. After that, I mean, I'm still learning new things about climate every day. It's a big issue, but I think the Gore presentation was certainly a pivot of sorts for me and probably for a lot of other people. (laughs) You are correct. A number of people have cited Al Gore as part of their motivating moment, not as early as you, usually his movie or his earlier book in 1992, Earth in the Balance. This week, I've been researching a hearing he did in the House of Representatives in 1981. And at that point, he was using charts and he was putting up the famous Keeling curve about the rise of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So he's always had a knack for using the visual. 
And I think a lot of people don't realize how far back this goes. The fact that Al Gore was doing these hearings in 1981 means that there's been a general awareness of this subject for quite a long time. Why is climate change mitigation personally important to you? Well, if I had to give one answer, I would say that there's a moral obligation to turn over the earth to the next generation as good or better as you found it. And we do that through education, we do that through technology, and we do it in passing on nature as much of it as we can. And so at this point in my life, I think a lot about my grandchildren. My next book is dedicated to my three grandchildren. I hope they get the significance of that. And so that's the main driver. It's also an intellectual challenge. And I think as humans collectively, we've got to figure out a way to handle this. And I kind of like intellectual challenges and trying to figure out politically viable solutions to fix problems. You're an author and you write about this, but when you meet people that don't understand the facts behind climate change or doubt that climate change exists, how do you explain to them that it does? I think if you divide it into its constituent parts, you can convince most people that it's a very real problem. I have sort of a record. If I sit next to somebody on a plane who's a climate change skeptic, it takes about 10 minutes, but I can usually flip them around. And you start with, we have very strong empirical evidence that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has been growing very rapidly. And unchecked at some point in this century, it's geared to double from what it was before the Industrial Revolution. That's a pretty incontrovertible fact. Now, the other thing is chemists have known about the chemistry of carbon dioxide, and they know that the sunlight that comes in when it's reflected off the earth, it doesn't all leave. And generally that's a good thing because that gives us the temperate climate that makes the earth habitable. We don't have too many planets that we know about, maybe just one where humans can live. But if the carbon keeps growing, the earth is gonna keep getting warmer. And that sounds kind of okay. You know, Maybe I move to the South because I want a warmer climate, but it's not at all even. Some places the temperature isn't gonna increase that much, but around the poles, it's going to increase a lot. And that's where the meltable ice is. And so that's going to decrease the landmass of the earth as more water is released. Now, at that point, I stop and say, is there anything so far that you want to challenge? And I think all of those are pretty solid. Then you have to deal with the issue, well, maybe it's good for the earth to warm. And then you say, well, it's going to dehydrate soils in some places. It might create more rain other places. We kind of know this because from the natural change that's occurred in the past, we've seen that happen. That's not really controversial. And so the question is, are you telling me that all the people in the areas that are getting dehydrated are going to move to the areas with more rainfall? How would we do that? Is some new real estate company going to oversee all this? It's just not really feasible. And then there's just the plain risk of it. You know, someone will say, well, we don't know exactly for sure is going to happen in the future. You just have these models. Well, the fact that you don't know exactly what's going to happen is a pretty good reason not to change nature in a rapid way, which is what we're doing now. That's how I kind of approach it. And I generally find people will accept that if you can sort of get them one-on-one -on -one and get outside of the political debate. So I'm kind of optimistic in that sense. I wish we had 10 minutes and maybe one day I'm going to follow up with you on that <laughs> to get the whole story. That's my short answer. 
Can you talk about your personal efforts to mitigate climate change? Well, that sort of falls into two buckets. I, I mean, as a personal choices that I make in my life, I try to use energy efficiently. I have solar panels on my roof. The whole house is designed to minimize the use of energy. If I have a choice between walking and driving, I walk. In my public persona, I started my career as a professor, so I still have sort of a professorial gene in me that my role is to educate. And, you know, I did that when I was at the Department of Energy. I've testified before Congress 27 times, and some of those have been on climate change. And now I, I devote myself pretty much full time to writing books about energy and climate change. And I think it helps one raise awareness of the issue with people who haven't paid attention to it. And I think those books also help people who are aware of the issue and have read quite a bit about it to maybe understand the nuances of it a little bit better. So that's how I see my role at this point. And has the pandemic slowed you down any or impacted you in some way? In my line of work, the way I write books is most of what I find historically has not yet been digitized. So I have to go to archives, either their memoirs of scientists or presidential libraries or other places where there are these vast reservoirs of documents. And I go through them. And even like a presidential speech, if the president mentions climate change in some way, I want to read the early drafts of the speech to see how did that get into the speech. So there's a lot of archival work that involves travel in my books. Fortunately, I've been doing this for years, and the year before the pandemic hit, I was able to hit two of the big science archives and really do a deep dive into the material. So I'm pretty much at this point, I have what I need to keep writing. <laughs> There's a few places I'd like to get to if I can, but if I'm interviewing somebody, I can do that on Zoom. I don't have to go visit them. So it's been disruptive, but I feel fortunate that I'm part of the population that can make adjustments. And I, I'm always happy when we can support the people who can't perform their work on Zoom and make sure that they're doing okay. Your book is about Carter and Nixon and Ford. Can you talk about how your background positioned you to be able to write such a book? Well, the Carter part of it goes back. I worked at the Carter White House. I worked in both of his presidential campaigns. I ran Louisiana in 1976 and Florida in 1980. And then I was head of his presidential library for 13 years. So I know the Carter materials backwards and forwards. I've had chances to talk extensively with him about energy. And so originally, I wasn't even going to write about him because I thought there might be a conflict of interest. I was just going to write about Nixon and Ford. But publishers wanted Carter too, and I talked with him about it. I talked with the National Archives about it. They didn't see a conflict of interest. I think everybody views me as a fair-minded person. So it was really the presidential library system. And I spent weeks and maybe months in the Nixon materials, a lot in the Ford materials. And because I knew the presidential library system, I think I knew a little better than most people where to look for things. Like it's very important in understanding the 1970s to understand our relationship with Saudi Arabia. It's still important to understand our relationship with Saudi Arabia. So I went to South Carolina, where the papers of the former U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia resided. Did I find a lot of interesting stuff there? It's just digging. And I love presidential history. And what I say about the book is you can learn a lot about energy by looking at how presidents handled the issue. But you can also learn a lot about the presidents by looking at how they handled energy. 
And being able to compare the three has a lot of advantages because maybe someone thinks, well, this issue started with Carter. Well, no, it has roots back in Ford and Nixon in some cases even earlier. So I like that kind of history I always have where you're comparing several presidents. And I listened to every tape where Richard Nixon talked about energy, hours and hours of tapes. And I found some very interesting things there, even that I think bear on the climate issue. They weren't specifically about climate, but they address some of the issues that we're dealing with today. Can you fill in before and after Carter with regards to your background? What got you to where you are today? Well, after Carter, he lost in 1980, and I ended up going to work for the governor of Florida, Bob Graham. During my time working for him, I was energy director of the state of Florida for five years. I was also his chief of staff because I also dabbled in politics a little bit. Then uh, when Clinton was elected, I was offered the position as director of the U.S. Energy Information Administration, which is the chief energy analytic part of the federal government. And I held that position for seven years, which is the longest anyone ever held it. It's a presidential Senate confirmed position. And that puts you right in the middle of every energy issue that's happening. You have a staff of about 700 people at that time who are specialists in nuclear energy, oil. We had a climate change section. And that's sort of my education. So I'm very fortunate because the two things I was really interested in, energy and presidential history, I got into positions where I could really follow through on that in a very serious way. What successes are you most proud of? Well, I've got several. I'm very proud of what I did at the Energy Information Administration with regard to putting that agency as one of the first on the web. I went there in 1993, and to get into a little bit of digital history, that was right around the time that the Netscape browser came out, and that was what enabled the internet as we know it today. And everybody was a little slow to pick up on it, and I think we were early. And so we started this idea that everything we have that's in print today is eventually going to be digital. Let's get it out there quickly, and it's going to make the world of energy a lot more understandable to the general public, to journalists, people that work in the field of energy. And that, I think, is a great gift to the United States and to the world because it's still one of the best sites out there. I would add to that that I was under some pressure in the 1990s to put that site behind a paywall. There were certain members of Congress that said, well, you, you, you know, this is a popular site. You can make the money by having a paywall. And I said, well, you know, the American people have paid through their taxes for this data to be collected. I can't justify putting it behind a paywall so that graduate students and other people can't get a hold of it. And I was able to win that battle. So it's a great free good. It's part of the information infrastructure. Now, when you move beyond that, I'm very proud of the renovation we did at the Carter Presidential Library. It has a museum and we had a $10 million budget in 2008. And we retold the story of Jimmy Carter. And I think if a person wants to learn how the White House operates, that's a good place to go. We have a day in the life of the president and it's a blur because so much is happening. And then finally, I would mention my books. In 2008, I wrote a book called A Declaration of Energy Independence. And I tried to show how we could deal with dependence on foreign oil, how we could deal with the environment, and particularly climate change and the economy and make all those things work well. I think that book's held up pretty well over time, even though it's a little dated now. 
And then the book that's just out is Energy Crises, a look at the 1970s, which is the most important decade for energy. And then I'm well along on a book on the history of the climate change debate starting in the 1950s during the Eisenhower administration and going up through Bill Clinton pretty much to the end of the 20th century. In these recent books, I try to tell the story as a narrative with interesting characters. I think that's a good way for readers to get a feel for an issue rather than more of a textbook lecture kind of thing. So that's what I'm proud of these days. I spend a lot of time on these books and hopefully they will be useful to the people that read them. Would it be presumptuous to ask you to share a little bit about the book with us? No, I'd be happy to do that. I think when I got started, it was based on several questions in my mind. Why did we have those gasoline lines back there? And some of the answers that were given were not very satisfactory to me. But one of the reasons I found out was that we didn't really know about our conversations with Saudi Arabia. And in both cases, American officials, on the day that the cuts were made in Saudi oil production, our people had meetings with the Saudis and came out of those meetings believing that there weren't going to be cuts. And that's kind of sobering because we look at the people top level of government and say, well, they know what's going on. And they didn't. So I, I think I sort of tease that out. And I think people will learn a lot about how important Saudi Arabia was during that period in a way that it would have been impossible at the time. Another thing I would say from that book that I think really pertains to climate, I think it's in some ways my favorite page. In early 1973, Richard Nixon is having a private conversation in the Oval Office with his policy advisor, John Ehrlichman. And Ehrlichman had said, you know, we're about to have an energy crisis. And he was right because it was only, you know, about eight months later, we had the 1973 Arab oil embargo. And he, he was having trouble getting Nixon to read all the papers that he had prepared for him. So Nixon said, well, the American people are never going to pay attention to energy unless the air conditioning goes out. And Ehrlichman said, yeah, you're right. He says, you're never going to get credit for a crisis you prevent. Well, that has so many ramifications to the current world. We've just had the Texas outage of electricity because people didn't prepare for it. And if they had, they probably never would have got credit for it. So from a politician's standpoint, this is a conundrum. And then you get to climate where the effects of today's pollution is going to be felt 50, 100 years from now. We always think, well, we'll clean it up afterwards. And this gets to really the nut of the problem. The nut of the problem is that there's not a lot of political advantage to preventing a crisis. So I think seeing that back in the 70s to say, aha, you know, it's not that much different today is kind of a breakthrough moment in a way. And that part of my book is always a favorite, partly because I had to listen to so many tapes to find that conversation. Well, we're already in a crisis. The question is how long before enough people and politicians realize we're in a crisis and how bad does it have to get before we take action? Well, I would argue we've taken action, maybe not in a well-planned or thought-out way, but the problem with climate change over the years is it's been hard to say, here we've got the technologies ready to go that solve the problem. In 2021, I think we can look someone straight in the eye and say, yes, we do have the technologies. Now, we don't have all of them because Solar will keep getting better. Batteries will keep getting better. Automobiles will keep getting more efficient. But even today, solar is 
the best way to produce electricity in many locations around the world and in parts of the United States. Why do we have that? We go back to Carter. The biggest investments we ever made in inflation-controlled dollars in solar technology was when Carter was president. It wasn't enough to get us to where we need to be today, but it got that ball rolling. So I think we're in a new era. And I think now we can both say this is a crisis, but the solution is at hand. So why would we not take that solution? And the question is, how fast do we have to move? And we have to not just sit back and say, well, solar is getting better. We're going to be driving electric cars in another 10 years. We have to say, how can we make that happen faster? Because the carbon goes into the air and stays there, as I've said, for a century or more. So we've got to move much more rapidly. I don't see, everybody talks about a tipping point. If there's a tipping point, we don't quite know where it is. All we know is it's gotten bad already and it's going to pick up speed. So the prudent, the conservative, the wise thing to do would be to slow it down as rapidly as possible. And we now have the means of doing that without a very big price tag. I agree with you 100%. When I said we weren't taking action, I'm talking about the political will, the joint common understanding that we must solve this and we must solve this now. An example of this would be World War II, where enough American people agree, join together, CEO changed jobs to ensure that America had the manufacturing capability to win the war. That's the kind of effort we need on climate change. To take a slightly contrarian point of view, I think the war analogy has some value, but I think it's limited. During World War II, you couldn't buy rubber. You had to plant your own garden because you couldn't get vegetables. By the end of the war, people were sick of that. It created a conservative backlash against these kind of government controls. So we were able to win the war and defeat Germany and Japan during that period, and then we could relax the controls. I think with climate, we have to up our game every year. Every year, the technology has to get better. And some of our habits of how we live our lives are going to have to change. And humans have a hard time changing all at once. So that's going to be a gradual thing. Since we live in a democracy, we do have to be careful that we don't create a backlash at some point. And that's why I think the fact it's gotten easier is good. But five years from now, even if we did everything that politically we even consider impossible to do, we would be far from the journey of where we need to go. because. Not only do we have to do it for the United States, but we have to convince the rest of the world. I'll be glad to talk about that. I can go on at length about China if you want to ask me about that. It's both a sprint and a marathon, and hopefully we will do that. Our political system is slow to change, and right now it's hard. We're going to have to continue to take the low-hanging fruit, and the voters who make a difference in the swing states are going to decide how fast we can do it. Every election makes a big difference. And so with the political system we have today, we're going to be able to chop away at a lot of pieces of it, but we're not going to be able to do what needs to be done. I love that perspective on World War II. I think you added some important facts. We certainly can't make people sick of the changes that they'll have to make to mitigate climate change. We need those people to help make the change. And we need technology to reduce the amount of the impact on our lives because I don't think people change easily. And if we have to depend on that, I think we're in trouble. Part of it is how we articulate it because there are a lot of side benefits from dealing with climate. 
If we're burning less fossil fuels, the air gets cleaner. Respiratory diseases go down. We don't have to use as many fertilizers in growing agricultural crops. We probably protect some of the species that are left from going as extinct. So this can be an exciting thing to say, how can we create this lifestyle that we really enjoy as humans, and yet we're not destroying the planet? I think it can be a very positive thing. And the more we emphasize the positive, I think the more we can get people to join the bandwagon. You mentioned China, and I do want to open that door. Can you elaborate? Well, I was fortunate because after my 2008 book came out a couple of years later, the Chinese government decided that they were going to get serious about dealing with climate change. China has its own reasons for wanting to. I mean, their hydrological system in China gets messed up by climate change. Plus, they want to be a world leader, and you can't be a world leader these days unless you're leading on climate change. So about 2010, there was a massive change in attitude over there. So the State Department said, well, Jay's scheduled to give a speech in Singapore on energy. Let's send him to China. So I went there for two weeks, and I spoke at universities, and I spoke to senior military officials, to you name it, in all parts of the country. So I'm going to Guangzhou, which is the capital of the largest province, and it's where they do most of the manufacturing that we use here in this country. At the time, I think if it was a separate country, it would have been the seventh largest economy in the world. So they said, Jay, we want you to speak to the Communist Party about climate change technologies. I said, well, I wasn't expecting that. So they called a special meeting for the whole province for me to speak to them about climate change. They had me down for an hour and a half. And I said, well, with a translator, that means I've got to have 45 minutes of material. So then I get there and they have simultaneous translation. So that means I've got an hour and a half. (laughs) And then they ask questions. And I could see there was kind of a hostile expression on people's face when we started off. By the end, the audience seemed much friendlier. And I did my slideshow and I talked about the technologies of the future. And one of the things I talked about was the LED light bulb, that simply by moving to that light bulb, we could reduce our energy demand. So when it finishes, I get a call from the consulate and says, this went over pretty well. Can you do a press conference with the governor of the province this afternoon? So we got together and did a press conference. And he said, now we should be using LED light bulbs, right? And I said, yeah, that would really help. I didn't quite realize at the time that they wanted to manufacture the LED light bulbs that the rest of the world might be using. But they were smart because they realized that climate change was a coming thing. And if they could produce LED light bulbs cheaper than anybody else, it was going to be good for business. Although our relationship with China is a little bit fractured right now, solving the climate change issue really requires the United States and China to work together. And I think there are a lot of ways where this is mutually beneficial. And I hope we do that. I think the people that dismiss China and say they're not doing anything aren't looking at the per capita data. Emissions per person are still much, much greater in this country. And I think China has been pulling its weight in recent years, maybe not doing as much as they need to, but nobody is at this point. So we need to enter into cooperative agreements with China. India certainly is a very big player in what the future is going to look like. I think you must have done a very good job. I was there to speak at an Accenture-sponsored conference in 2013. 
I was not the featured attraction, by the way. (laughs) And what really impressed me was that although it was a general energy conference, not a climate conference, the Chinese officials high up in government, when they spoke, they spoke about climate change and the need to save their country from the smog and the pollution. I was very impressed by how seriously they took it. A lot changed from the time you discussed it with them and when I did. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. And I think what you're saying totally reinforces what my experience was, that they were taking the issue seriously, and I think they take it very seriously today. Given your deep history in the energy space, what are your thoughts about how the U.S. arrived where it is with regards to climate change mitigation? Well, maybe I'm a little bit biased as a historian, but I think it's important to realize how much was known about climate change in the 1950s, for instance. It was during the 1950s that the mass media, people like Time Magazine and the New York Times, started to carry articles about climate change. It was during the 1950s that you had people talking about climate change and testimony before the Congress. When Eisenhower was president, I can document that at least one of his advisors was aware of the climate issue. Why is that important? It's important because it shows that we've known about it for a long time, or at least some people have known about it. When Lyndon Johnson was president in 1965, he published a major report on the environment. There was a big, thick chapter on climate change. And by this time, we were starting to get better data on the accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere. In some ways, it's very frustrating that we've been at it so long. But I think if we're going to be realistic about the problem, I think it's sobering and maybe a kick in the rear that we need to elevate it even more. But also in looking at history, we see the evolution of technologies. To pick, for instance, in 1975, the Congress passes a law requiring more mileage efficiency from automobiles. Now, you would say that's a really smart thing to do for climate because that reduces the use of oil and gasoline. Well, that's not why they did it. They did it because we were dependent on foreign oil. But That doesn't change the fact that if they hadn't done that, we would have been in even worse shape in the year 2000 or even today. And so when you go back in history, you'll find these bursts of times where we were doing things that are helpful and then times of apathy. So from 1985 to 2007, we do nothing to improve the efficiency of automobiles. Those 22 years lost in vehicle efficiency will never get them back. So that's one reason I emphasize the sustained effort that keeps going and doesn't stop to make our energy use more efficient, that every year we're pouring money into research and development on alternate energy technologies, and we're providing tax and other incentives to technologies to enter the market, and then eventually they don't need the incentives. All those things, I think we understand the future better if we understand how we got to where we are today. Sometimes I get excited about what corporations are doing to help mitigate climate change. And I'll mention that to my daughters who are in their 20s. And they get a bit upset that we're leaning on corporations. They think it should be government leading the charge on this. Do you have a perspective on that? I would say your daughters are right. Often the case in my family. I think in some ways it is shameful. Even today, We have not passed a comprehensive bill affecting climate change. Fortunately, if you go back to the passage of the Clean Air Act in 1970, you have to give Ed Muskie, I don't know if people remember Ed Muskie, he's from Maine, and he was the father more than anybody else of the Clean Air Act. 
And Muskie actually mentioned climate change as one of the things that we needed to deal with. It wasn't the biggest deal at the time, but he mentioned it. And so under the Clean Air Act, the Supreme Court has ruled that presidents like Obama did can use regulations under the Clean Air Act. But the fact that our political system has not been able to deal with this, and unless you want me to, I I won't get into who, but there are people who seem to be devoting their lives to trying to block solutions to climate change. The way our system works, it's easier to block things than to pass them. The only thing I would say is part of it is how we deal with the political system. And where are the purple states? The purple states are North Carolina, they're Arizona, they're Georgia. And so in some ways, this issue has to be explained in ways that's attractive to those states. And if that happens, then we have a kind of a new political system where we can deal with it more forcefully. But I'm sad to say, as I started my career as a political science professor, the lack of progress from the political system is shocking. Now, I would say that when it comes to alternate energy technologies like solar, that research and development money, particularly in the early stages, is government money because no corporation is going to invest in something that's going to pay off 30, 40 years down the road. The government sometimes will do that. So the government deserves a pat in the back, I think, for helping to develop solar technology. We'd be better off if they'd done more and done it in a more sustained way. You had mentioned outing the blockers? Well, it's kind of sad because you go back in the 1980s and they have these hearings on climate change and both parties are saying this is a problem that we need to deal with. And then I think a big change comes when the Newt Gingrich House comes in in 1994, and you get a pretty solid group there that sort of is climate deniers. And they block any consideration of updating automobile efficiency standards and anything that might deal with the problem. And so that's an issue. And then we get into our current century. President Bush kind of changes. By the end of his eight years, he's kind of saying, okay, climate's a problem we're going to have to deal with. In the 2008 election, Both Obama and McCain were calling for big cuts in carbon emissions. Obama a little bit more than McCain, but for the time, McCain's goals were quite, quite robust. Then after McCain lost, it seemed like the Republican Party reverted back to tilting towards denying climate change or saying, well, we'll just adjust to it, too expensive to change our energy systems. And that's been a big blockage. There certainly have been, there's a climate caucus that includes some Republicans, but they've never had much influence. Right now, I think they're trying to jump on the bandwagon part way. But if you look carefully at what they say, often it's just like, well, we need to prepare to build bigger dikes and adjust to this climate change rather than slow down climate change. That may change as they have to appeal to a younger electorate. I mean, young people unlike my generation, have studied climate change in school. So that's a different scenario. They are also going to live for a longer time. So they're going to experience these dire consequences that are 40, 50 years down the road. I guess that's the solution where all the politicians figure it. These younger voters understand this issue. We better present more robust solutions. What's your vision of the future with regard to climate change? Are we going to make it? Well, I think we're going to know about 2030, whether we have a chance to rein it in. And what that means, it might be controversial, but 
over history, most scientists have sort of accepted, and I think maybe erroneously, that the Earth could sustain a two degrees Celsius warming. Now, for most Americans who don't think in Celsius, that's 3.6% Fahrenheit. So that sounds a little bit worse than two, and it's not spread evenly. Right now, although there's a lot of rhetoric that we need to limit it to 1.5 warming, I don't see how that can be done. Two, I think, is doable with a massive effort. And by 2030, we won't know that we can limit that, but we know if we have a chance to limit it. And there's always been a feeling that above the 2.0 Celsius level, things could really get out of hand. I could conceive that in 2050, we would have gotten down to close to 80 to 90% zero carbon emissions, eliminated most of them. And there are other gases that we haven't talked about, like methane, that are very strong gases, but they don't stay in the atmosphere for as long. So when we limit methane today, we'll start to see the benefit of that before 2050, which, you know, we need a pat on the back every once in a while to see the fruits of our labor. I could see a situation where these technologies now had gotten so cheap that everybody around the world would say, I want solar and I want wind. I want electric automobiles. I think that is possible, but it's a choice that humans collectively will have to make. We will have to adjust to it. I'm in Louisiana, we're losing a lot of coastline. Climate change is not the only reason for that, but it's certainly one reason. We spend money trying to protect the coast. So we're gonna to have to do those things. We're gonna to have to keep improving agricultural sciences to deal with different kinds of pests and different hydration levels that climate change produces. I'm not the most pessimistic or the most optimistic, but I think we have a lot of choices in front of us now, and I hope we make the right choices. Has the pandemic changed your perspective about the future? Well, the pandemic sort of has lowered emissions for this year as people have cut back on travel. I think most of that is probably going to be short term because I think people who had a year without vacations are probably going to take an extra vacation or two when they feel like they can travel. I do think there's some residual effect where people who drove to work every day might be working from home, not five days a week, maybe several days a week. That will help a little bit on the climate front. But it does show that transportation makes a big difference, and it's something that we have to address. Air travel is one of the great hurdles for dealing with climate. We're pretty sure we can run a car off of electricity because we can do that now. Having electric airplanes is a little more challenging, but I gave some lectures in the last year or two at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh which is a great school. Thank you very much. And they, they have uh, professors there working on these electric airplanes and they're smart people. How we travel has been affected by the pandemic. And it's one of the things that we really have to pay close attention to in the years going forward. And young people hopefully will learn to look for the most environmentally effective options. Do you have advice for people that would like to help mitigate climate change? Again, there's a personal level to this, how we conduct our lives. And I think on a personal level, transportation is the big ticket item right now. It's where emissions are growing the fastest in the United States. And all of us have ways of dealing with it. If we have a choice, we may be able to live in walkable neighborhoods where we can cut down our need for fuel-based transportation. 
when we buy a car, we should buy the most fuel efficient one. If everybody would do that, that would be very, very helpful. From a public policy standpoint, I think all of us need to be informed voters. I think we need to read a lot of books about climate change. There's a lot coming out right now so that we can talk with the people who don't understand it more intelligently, that we help along those people. There are places in the country where everybody buys into the climate change urgency. And if those are the only people that you talk to, you sometimes aren't seeing the picture of what needs to happen to reach the wider audience. So read up, look for good solutions, make it part of your how you vote and how you support political candidates. Because if we're going to get the government involved, politics is going to have to be more effective than it's been. Do you have any questions for me? What have you learned recently from your interviews that you think the world most needs to know? Keeping it short and consistent with what you've been saying, we really need the government to go hard and to get other governments to go hard as well. Good, good message. Anything else? No, I hope you have me back when I finish my book on the climate change debate. Absolutely. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. You were driving with your fam and you were inspecting how polluted the air was and it was worth protecting. There was pollution everywhere. You noted that fact. But Muskie in 1970 helped with the Clean Air Act. You do research on climate, so you're always learning more. Kicked off by an early presentation from Al Gore. You were impressed that Gore, he had the nerve to reference the Keeling Curve. You believe in technology, our nation and education we have to save the planet. It's our moral obligation. Even if a real estate agent could get in the groove, how would they help millions and millions and millions of people move? You've served in many administrations, so a lot you have seen, but you've retained your professorial gene. Switching between education and politics, it shows you have many gears, but you led the U.S. Energy Information Administration for a record seven years. When you visit the Carter Library, you just may understand the blur of being president for a day. The politicians in Saudi, they thought they avoided the OPEC mines, but still very soon after, we had long gas lines. You wanted to show me a contrarian view, so you pushed back on my analogy of World War II. The threat of climate change, you helped China to see, and they focused on manufacturing the LED. It was in Times Magazine, so it wasn't a mystery. If you look at the 19 50s articles, you can see it in our history. If we want to deal with climate, we have a reliance on technology solutions like agricultural science. We had GHG savings this year, but it's going to unravel. We'll be in trouble when we double our post-pandemic travel. Use of fuel is growing too much in our nation. We've got to find a way to reduce our personal transportation. This conversation was great. For goodness sakes, go out and Get Energy Crises by Jay Hakes. <laughs> I will attest that you did that in real time rather than take two or three days to do that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but if you want the story of electric aircraft telling, there's one place to go. That's Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> If I'm ever elected president, I'm going to have you speak at my inauguration. You're just saying that because you know you're not going to be elected president. <laughs> J. 
pointed out articles in Times Magazine from the 1950s that talked about climate change. And while, like Jay, I remain hopeful that we'll come together as a nation and world, I fear that we are too focused on our differences. Hey, we couldn't even agree on masks. But hopefully, we will find a way. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. There's a song in Hamilton called The Room Where It Happens. No one really knows how the game is played, the art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. We just assume that it happens. But no one else is in the room where it happens. Well, Jay brings us into that room and shines a light on the history of energy and what's at stake, mitigating climate change. (laughs) 